We've been going through the book of Mark um, because Mark is the earliest account we have of the life of Jesus. It's a firsthand account. It's a historical account. It's a beautiful account. And so if we're asking the question, who is Jesus, which is a question that has been asked throughout the centuries, Mark is a great place to go because he wants us to have an encounter with the real Jesus, with what he really said and what Jesus really did. And so far in Mark's gospel, we see that the real Jesus disrupts the status quo. He disrupts the status quo, especially with the religious leaders and elite. You know, in merely two chapters, just two chapters, Jesus has already developed a reputation as a blasphemer, uh, as a colleague of sinners, and as an apostate from religious customs. Which leads us to think, if Jesus merely came to establish himself as another religious leader, he's doing it all wrong. No, that's, but that's not what he came to do. Uh, Jesus came, what he came to do is utterly different. It's utterly different than religion as humanity has known it. In our passage today, we reach a tipping point. In, in the reading we just heard, Jesus, he goes too far. He touches an issue so central and so defining and so important to the religious leaders of his day that their offense boils over into rage and they begin to plot Jesus' demise. And honestly, we can relate in some capacity. You may say, yes, Jesus, you're welcome here. You're you're welcome there. I'm not sure about this spot. In this place, this space, this thing, no, Jesus. I can't welcome you there. It defines me. It's mine. You can't define it. It can't be yours. In a way, Jesus to us can sometimes feel like the person who doesn't respect personal space. You know, like, yes, it's really nice to see you, Jim, but like, I don't need to smell your breath. You know, and Jesus, he gets so close to our lives, close enough to metal, and we don't like his breath. In our passage today, the space that Jesus is invading for the religious leaders is the Sabbath. It defines them, and they don't want Jesus to define it, but make no mistake about it, we have a tipping point too. And while we may not like Jesus getting too close, while we may not like his breath, while we may want to pull back, By entering into these spaces in our lives, Jesus is actually trying to breathe life, deep, rich, Sabbath-quality life into us. And that's the big idea this morning. Jesus wants to breathe Sabbath-quality life into us, but it initially smells like death. If you have a Bible, open it up with me to Mark chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? This passage starts on one Sabbath. The issue at hand is the Sabbath, and so we need to spend a bit of background on the Sabbath to get the full uh, force of what is happening here. Uh, Most of the world's religions, they have a sacred space, a sacred place. Islam honors Mecca, Uh, Hinduism, the the Ganges River, Uh, Shintoism, the island of Japan. Uh, For Judaism, they had a venerated place, uh, the temple in Jerusalem, but they also had a, a venerated sense of time and maybe even above place. To them, it was the Sabbath. But you don't have to be religious uh, to understand or relate to this. Canada has venerated places. Ottawa, 24 Sussex Drive. But we even venerate something beyond uh, our capital or the the residence of our prime minister. We venerate an idea. 
multiculturalism. It is central to our identity as Canadians. If you grew up in Canada or if you went through our education system, this has been instilled in you since childhood. And in the same way, the time of the Sabbath was central to Jewish identity. It's how they made sense of themselves. It's how they made sense of their place within the world. And the Sabbath, it mattered immensely from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. Time changed and work ceased. Now, the Sabbath, keep, keeping the Sabbath, it's in the Ten Commandments, but it's unique in the Ten Commandments because it's intertwined with creation itself. By honoring the Sabbath, you're actually honoring the way in which God crafted the entire universe. And honoring the Sabbath actually comes with a brilliant promise. Isaiah, the prophet, he captures this in his writings. Uh, in chapter 58, verses 13 to 14, he writes to Israel, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and a holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. The Sabbath comes with this promise of pure delight and elation. You're going to ride on the heights of the earth as you delight in the presence of God himself. It's, it's, it's about joy and life and wholeness, and it just has one stipulation. Stop working. Don't do any work. Nada. And so this passage in Mark, it takes place on the Sabbath, and it takes place with Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisees. And for the Pharisees, a sect within first century Judaism, the Sabbath was especially central to them. And they upheld it with everything they had, with all zeal and diligence, because they believed it was actually because of Sabbath breakers, people who didn't honor the Sabbath, people who didn't respect the Sabbath, that God had not yet sent his Messiah. It was because of the Sabbath breakers that God had not yet sent and established his kingdom on earth. And so in their mind, Israel had to return to keeping the Sabbath in order for the Messiah to come, in order for the kingdom of God to be established on earth. The issue, however, is what constitutes work? What can and can't be done on the Sabbath? And the question uh, isn't as easy to answer as you may think. You know, Scripture says don't do work. It gives a handful of examples. But what about all these other things? Um, asking this question is a lot like asking really committed Scrabble players, hey, what dictionary do you want to use? You know, you can just be like, you just grab a dictionary, it's like the new Oxford Dictionary. And that would be fine for most of us, but to the Scrabble person, like, no, no, no. You know, like for me, dictionary.com, it is fine, right? Like it is fast, it's efficient. No, 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 no. A true Scrabble player uses the official Scrabble dictionary, and anything less is not Scrabble. And Roger especially takes issue with this. I don't know if you've played Scrabble with him, but he's always trying to get colloquial slang in there, like all these words that nobody ever uses. Uh, it's not true. I've never played Scrabble with Roger, and I imagine he would slate me. But anyways, uh, <laughs> what was the approved dictionary for defining what work could and couldn't be done on the Sabbath. For the Pharisees, it was the Mishnah, an ancient document that we have now. And, uh, you know, it listed the usual suspects. You would get uh, work like plowing, hunting, and, and, and butchering, you know, the stuff related to the actual work you would do in your trade. And that makes enough sense, you know, don't do your work on the Sabbath. 
But then there's a few other rules that don't make as much sense, like uh, tying or loosening knots. Can't do that on the Sabbath. Sewing more than one stitch, which would get really awkward if you split your pants. Uh, you could not write more than one letter without breaking the Sabbath. You see, it got so rigorous that they had 39 classifications of work that guided them on how to honor and preserve the Sabbath. And so this is the picture of the Sabbath. It's a command from God. It's a picture of creation filled with great promises of blessing. And the Pharisees, they have their traditions designed to protect the Sabbath because the coming of the kingdom of God depends upon Sabbath keeping. Got it? So let's reread then Mark verses 23 through 24. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? From the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus and his disciples seem to be a part of the problem. They're impeding the kingdom of God. They seem to be playing by a different set of rules, not the Mishnah. You know, can or can't you pluck a head of grain from a grain field on the, on the Sabbath? Is this or isn't this work? And we get the Pharisees' answers. They said, why are you doing what's not lawful? But are the Pharisees right? Is God that much of a stickler that if you pluck a head of grain on the Sabbath, that you can't enter into his kingdom, that you will not know his blessings and his promises. In other words, does experiencing God in his fullness and all the blessings and promises described in the Sabbath here depend on us keeping the right set of rules? Jesus responds in verses 26 through 27. He said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him uh, entered the house of the Lord and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Think about last week's parable. In Mark chapter 2, uh, Jesus talks about new wine and old wineskins about the relationship between the new and the old. And when it comes to this moment in King David's life, a new situation arose which stood apart from the old. He was the anointed king of Israel, and he was on the run, and he needed food for survival. And since David was the anointed king of God, a picture of the eternal king and Messiah that God would one day send, he had the authority from God to set aside the old rules for the new situation that arose. Jesus is saying that a new situation is at hand because he is the eternal king which David looked towards. He is the Messiah. The kingdom of God is at hand and it hasn't been inhibited because of Sabbath breakers or people who haven't been able to live up to God's standards. Something new is happening. But Jesus, just because he's doing something new, it doesn't mean that he's trying to undo the Sabbath. Here's what he's trying to do. He's unraveling the tradition, traditions constructed around the Sabbath, which choked out its essence. He's unraveling the traditions which made the Sabbath into something it was never meant to be, a burden rather than a blessing and a gift which brings about wholeness in life. And then Jesus just lays down a real zinger, verses 27 and 28. 
The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a you know, drop the mic kind of moment in Jesus' life. The Pharisees lived as if man was made for the Sabbath. And they had turned the Sabbath into this cruel taskmaster that no one could really live up to. No one could really be sure if they were keeping it in the right way. But Jesus plants his feet firmly on the soil of earth as God himself. He says, the Son of Man is the Lord, even of the Sabbath. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The title Son of Man refers to Jesus' divinity and his authority. And now he declares that as Lord, as Master, he has authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord over something that God himself created. Jesus is saying, I am him. And in other words, he gets to define what is and isn't permissible on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is his. He gets to define the Sabbath's true purpose, which also means that he has the ability as Lord to bring about the beautiful promises of the Sabbath, a quality of life filled with joy and abundance, elation, riding on the heights of the earth, blessing and rest, what the Jews called peace, shalom, wholeness, goodness abiding in every aspect of creation. So Jesus says, out with the old. Out with the old. Out with the Pharisees' strict view of the Sabbath. Out with what their understanding of what was required for the Messiah to come. Out with keeping the right set of rules in order to get into God's presence. And Jesus says, in with the new. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he's making available the quality of life that can be found in the Sabbath promises. And it doesn't come by our ability to keep the Sabbath or to obey the law or be good people. What defines keeping the Sabbath is being with Jesus, like his disciples were. Can you pluck a head of grain? They were with Jesus. He said it was okay. It's the proximity to Jesus, allowing him to define what is and isn't work. It's the relationship with him that defines what we can or can't do on the Sabbath. And this would be deeply unsettling to the Pharisees. It would totally destabilize them. They're losing their grip and their control and their view of how God operates in the world. And if Jesus is right, they have a real problem. You know, if they're wrong, who are they? What do they do? How do they make sense of the world? Like they, all these rules were how they found their place in society. And as this unsettling reality sinks in, the conflict only gets bigger. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Was it lawful? You know, to pluck the heads of grain. Jesus made his case. But now the Pharisees want a more blatant Sabbath violation. So here we are. It's another Sabbath, and they're waiting, and they're carefully watching Jesus. And this is important. They're watching him intensely because they want to accuse him. They want to accuse him. Up until this point, the Pharisees and other religious leaders, they asked Jesus questions. But now the motives of their heart are coming on display. They want a reason, any reason, to do away with Jesus. And we should take stock of our own hearts here really quick. You probably have your set of questions, like the religious leaders, that you would like to ask God. 
You know, it might not be about the Sabbath. It might not be about where Jesus derives his authority. Your question might be, God, why do you allow so much suffering in the world? Your question might, might be, God, why is it so hard to find you at times? Your question might be, how can I really trust that Jesus is the Son of God? Whatever question it may be, what's behind the question? Maybe it's genuine curiosity. But if you push deeper, are you able to relate to the Pharisees just a little bit? Behind your questions, is there a desire to find a way to discredit God so that you don't have to believe in him? Then you've already made your mind up. You're actually asking the question so that you can use the answer to validate what you already think. You want to accuse him. The Pharisees are looking to accuse Jesus. They're not interested in dialogue. They're not interested in learning. Their minds are made up and they want to do away with Jesus. And so Mark goes on in in verses 3 through 6. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus goes straight for... <laughs> I don't know what's happening right now. intermission, people. Stretch. Man. Apparently God knew we needed a break. (laughs) You guys having fun back there? (laughs) All right. So Jesus and a Pharisee walk into a bar, and uh, I think that's where we were, right? So Jesus asks, he asks the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And while Jesus is is talking about the man with the withered hand, he's really talking about him and the Pharisees. Remember, we've seen in Mark's gospel, Jesus knows the intentions and thoughts of people's hearts. And so Jesus knows what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts. He knows they're already plotting to kill him. And so he asks them, what is more lawful? What's more lawful? To bring health and wholeness to a man on the Sabbath, a reflection of the sort of quality of life that is supposed to be in God's creation. Or to plan to kill someone on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are silent. Partly because they're exposed, but partly because they don't care that they're exposed. Because sometimes when you think you're right, you can be so convinced that the evil you intend to do is actually good. Mark says in verse 5, Jesus looked around with anger that he was grieved by their hardness of heart. Let that sink in. He looked around with anger. He was grieved with their hardness of heart. And yet, Jesus' anger leads him to act compassionately. He asks the man to stretch out his hand, and Jesus heals him. His hand is restored. And this creates a tipping point. Look at verse 6 again. The Pharisees held a council on how to destroy 
Jesus. There's no going back from this point. The Pharisees now have everything they need to accuse Jesus. By their books, healing on the Sabbath is work. Jesus has broken the Sabbath. Now, from our perspective, it really does seem like the Pharisees are overreacting a little bit here. I mean, really? You're going to kill someone over breaking the Sabbath? Come on. You know, like there's better reasons to kill someone. I can't think of any, but I'm sure there are. And, and we simply don't hold the Sabbath in the same esteem that the Pharisees did. And so for us, it's hard not to see their actions as an overreaction. But we don't want to miss what's actually happening here. Jesus has stepped on something fundamentally central to the Pharisees' identity. It's a found, part of their foundation of who they are. It defined their entire lives and their place in the world. Have you ever overstepped into someone's life? For many of us, the World Health Organization did a massive overstep this past week and declared that bacon can cause cancer. I mean, this, people were furious online. It caused crisis. I mean, I had serious life decisions to make about this. They overstepped. Don't tell me that bacon causes cancer. I don't want to know. Good news. Yesterday, they realized they overstepped and they retracted. And they said the bacon can be enjoyed in moderation without risk, especially with caramel or chocolate or any other thing you want to put bacon on. But more seriously, have you ever overstepped in a conversation? You know, maybe you're having a conversation with a dear friend and it's going well. But suddenly you, you share an idea or a thought, maybe it's even a political opinion, and they get really angry with you. But the way they respond is disproportionate to the comment. What's going on there? It's, it's not just that you disagree. It's that what you disagree with is foundational to their identity. It's defining for them. It's an identity issue for them. And so they actually see you as disagreeing with their personhood. So what are some of those places for us? It might not be the Sabbath. Actually, I doubt that it is for anyone here. But it might be your value of tolerance. That all views are equal and should be respected. And then suddenly Jesus steps in and declares that he's not just Lord of the Sabbath, but he's Lord of the universe. And he says things like, no one can come to me, the Father except through me. These are intolerant claims, and suddenly you're not sure you can live with this sort of Jesus. Why? Because being tolerant is foundational for you. It's a part of how you define yourself as a good person. It's a part of your identity. You can't let Jesus touch that. It might be your value of sexual freedom. You want to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with any consenting party you want. And then Jesus steps in with these seemingly regressive sexual ethics. And how can you reconcile the Christian value of marriage being reserved, or uh, sex being reserved for marriage, with your value of sexual freedom? You're not sure you can live with this sort of Jesus. Why? Because your sexual identity defines who you are. It's core to your identity. It might be that you just want religion to be kept private. You know, people can have whatever belief they want, uh, that you can believe whatever you want. You can have your personal relationship with Jesus, but it should not be brought up in public. Religion is just a personal value. It has no place in the public sphere. But when you encounter Jesus, he calls us to a personal faith, but also a public faith. A faith that intersects with all areas of life. And you can't deal with it because you want to live two lives. You want your personal life and you want your public life and you want them not to overlap. You want to compartmentalize. 
When Jesus touches on something central to how we define our lives, whatever it may be, we're prone to respond just like the Pharisees. We think Jesus needs to be destroyed. Now, we have to get more creative about how we destroy Jesus. I don't think anyone in here is about to go try to murder him, I hope. But how do we go about it? Well, we either fictionalize him or we fragment him. We fictionalize him. We say that he's just a myth. There might be some good to learn from him, but he's bound by archaic notions that have long since passed. And if he's fiction, then we don't need to worry about what he said or did and how it bears upon reality. When he's fiction, we can ignore any intolerant statements. Or we fragment Jesus. We say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe he existed. I believe a lot of what the Bible says, but I can't believe everything the Bible says because sometimes the Bible's just wrong. And so what you do is you pick and choose the scriptures that don't challenge the values that are in conflict in your life. And when Jesus is fragmented this way, we can maintain the life we want to live. You can be uh, sexually free. You can have a private life that doesn't intersect in the public life. But what you've really done is created a pick and choose Jesus. You've fragmented him. You've destroyed him. So it might not be the Sabbath for us. But we all have a place that we hold so close, so dear in our lives that it's central and defining to who we are. And you can name it. And if Jesus stepped into that place, you would likely say, no, not that. You've gone too far. But when we don't allow Jesus into that space, when we don't allow him to become the center of our lives, what happens? We settle for a, a false Sabbath. We might be thinking, well, wait, I don't even keep the Sabbath. Well, maybe you should, and we'll get to that. But um, when we live life on other terms, when we find things that we want to become the foundation of our lives that define our identity, we look to those things. And we think, these things will grant me rest. These things will give me contentment. These things are what make me a good person. But no matter how free we may be, no matter what values we may adopt, is it not true that true, lasting rest always seems to evade us? You put your identity in a sexual freedom. So you have a one-night stand, or you sleep with your boyfriend for a while and you break up, or you have the affair, whatever it is. And when you're doing it in the moment, you think, this is satisfying. This is good. I feel at peace with my being. But it doesn't take long before that moment passes that suddenly you're restless again. And you're struggling. And you might feel used or you might feel um, guilty or you might feel a variety of things. And so you go back and forth between feeling like this thing can provide what it, I thought it could provide and then thinking, no, I don't want to live that way anymore. It doesn't work. And you go back and forth. You don't have a true Sabbath rest. You have a false Sabbath because you're you have a false identity. You know, tolerance might be key to your identity, being someone who respects all views and considers all views equal. And let's be fair, there's some merit to that perspective. But you realize that just because you become more tolerant, it doesn't make you more accepting by default. That sometimes you really struggle to accept people. So you have this high ideal of tolerance to people, but then you can't accept people who aren't tolerant like you. And so you become intolerant and self-contradictory and you don't know what to do with yourself. 
And so sometimes you feel good about yourself and sometimes you feel bad about yourself because you have a false identity, you have a false Sabbath. And it's a false Sabbath because we're trying to find rest and contentment and identity and wholeness outside of the Lord of the Sabbath, outside of the Lord of rest, outside of God himself. And the problem is that our hearts can get really stuck in our ways, and they can harden. And we might sense what I just talked about, but we don't like to admit it. We don't like it pointed out. Because we want to live on our own terms. We don't want to allow Jesus close enough to breathe life into us. Because when he breathes life into those places initially, it smells like death. Because all we see and, and, and taste are the things that we have to lay down, the things we're not ready to let go of. And Jesus, he looks at the hardness of our hearts. How we want to define ourselves without him. How we want to find rest without him. How we want to justify that we're good people without him. And it grieves him hardness of our hearts grieves him. Yet, when Jesus is angered and grieved, he still acts compassionately. In the midst of a tense situation, Jesus still healed the man with the withered hand, and he did so at great, great cost to himself. From that moment onwards, the Pharisees are conspiring his death. He knew his actions would trigger the events that would lead him to the cross, and yet he still heals the man. Because that's exactly why he came. Jesus may be angered and grieved by the hardness of our hearts, but that anger and grief doesn't lead him to condemn us. It leads him to act in the most astonishingly compassionate way. He goes to the cross so that we can enter the real rest of God. He goes to the cross so that restless people can finally find rest. He goes to the cross even for those who want to destroy him. Why? Because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He didn't create all of this so that people would be restless and empty and, and living out false identities. He wants people to enter into that rest and he's willing to pay whatever cost it will take to get through the hardness of our hearts and to reconcile us so that we might enjoy this true Sabbath rest. Because he's not just the Lord of the Sabbath here on earth. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. Jesus dies to bring us true Sabbath rest. He dies to bring us into this eternal rest of God. And we don't get there by living out our own values or by our own ways or by anything we do. We only get there by resting in Jesus, by ceasing from our work and allowing him to draw near and it's backwards because sometimes when we talk about the cross and we talk about forgiveness of sins, and even if you resonate with that and you think, I feel really bad about how I'm living, I see I'm living out of false identity, it's easy to start thinking, I need to feel bad long enough before this forgiveness sticks. Right? So I did something and now I need to feel bad for like two or three days and then ask God for forgiveness because then I'm worthy of forgiveness. I felt bad long enough. But that's not the case. God sees us in our entirety. He knows our thoughts, our inclinations. He sees how restless we are. He sees how we intentionally mess up at times and refuse to recognize it. He says, I forgive you there. Not when you've felt bad long enough. Not when you've hated yourself long enough. I want to give you rest and I want to remove you from that system of operation. 
And it's by inviting Jesus into the places in our lives that we hold so dearly, so centrally to ourselves. These places that create our restlessness. It's by inviting him there that we can truly find rest. By allowing him to become our center and our Lord. And it may smell like death at first. Because we do have to die to parts of ourselves. And maybe our prayer is, I want to want you, Jesus. Or I want to want to want you, Jesus. And that's enough. Because it's not just that we can harden our hearts. It's that, by default, our hearts are hard. We can't crack them open ourselves. The prayer, I want to want you in this space, even though I don't really want you in your space, in this space, that is enough because Jesus is the only one who can soften your heart. Our response, as Mark has been teaching us throughout the gospel, is simply to repent and to believe and to follow. Repentance, in this case, being changing our entire perspective of how rest and value and identity works. And allowing Jesus to define those things and believing what he says about us and following him in his ways, not trying to earn anything or our approval. So those are our options. One leads to death and restlessness, and the other leads to life and rest. Because the only way into the true Sabbath rest of God is through the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus himself. And so it's important that we keep the Sabbath here and now. But we, we can't make it about rules. Like the disciples, make it more about being with Jesus and honoring him. Take a 24-hour period sometime in your week to stop working. Because there's great joy to be found in resting in Christ for a day. And just as you don't have to work to earn your salvation, you don't have to work on that day to find God's promises being fulfilled to find elation in his presence, to dwell in the the identity that he's given you and the true rest he's established for you because you're already secure, you're already accepted, you're already loved. But also remember, and this is important for us, that whatever delight in rest you may experience here and now, it's incomparable to the glory of the true Sabbath that awaits when Christ finally brings us home. Any joy, any elation we have here is just a glimpse of the Sabbath rest that Christ has established for us when he makes the new heavens and earth. So if you're tired and you're restless, if you've been living in a false identity, if you've been living out a false Sabbath, come and taste the rest that Jesus offers. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.